Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. And on this show, we talk about how complicated healthcare is. And I liken it to this crazy 30,000 piece puzzle and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And every single one of our guests essentially brings in their area of expertise and where they fit into that puzzle. So I'd like to give you a minute today to introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Kenzie Butera Davis. I'm the CEO and founder of Morrow. We are an early stage company, but we're actually a finalist this year for Health's Digital Health Innovation Award, which is really exciting. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And a little bit of context. So we sit at the intersection of healthcare and K-12 education. So primarily what we're doing is we're screening kids for depression and anxiety in their K-12 classroom setting, just like you would screen for physical health needs. And then we're triaging intervention and referral pathways to get kids to the right care much faster. Okay, there's a lot there. Can we talk about how Maro came to be and the story of, you know, your journey, if you don't mind? Absolutely. I would love to share. So, well, Maro was an idea many, many, many years ago. I care really deeply about keeping kids safe and finding proactive ways to create safe spaces for kids to grow up in. When I started my career, I was working for a nonprofit. So I was working for a domestic violence and a rape crisis center. It's an issue that is near and dear to my heart. I myself am a survivor. I have many, many family members who are survivors. And the challenge was I was seeing my peers who, you know, were in their 30s and they were burned out. And I don't think they were any less passionate about the problem, but I think their hope for finding ways to solve it was uh, sort of dissipating. And they were less optimistic about the future and you know supporting survivors. And in this particular case, we were serving 17 counties and I believe we had less than 20 beds. So it was really hard. And I just felt like I wanted to find something that was on the proactive side of that problem. So I started doing research. I was still in school. I wrote a thesis on the implementation of health education in the US. So at the time, I was really focused on sex education because I found consent education to be a really powerful form of an area where we could prevent further rape and sexual assault. 
And a lot of the principles that I wrote that thesis on actually applied and transitioned really well to mental health. So I pivoted. My career was working with startups, investing in ed tech and healthcare companies through an incredible female-led fund called The Jump Fund in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, ultimately, my heart just kept coming back to wanting to be an operator. And I knew this problem really deeply well. But, you know, COVID had happened. The youth mental health crisis was becoming more and more and more apparent. And I knew so many kids who were struggling. And I thought, well, why not apply the foundations of what I wrote my thesis on, but to mental health instead? And ended up meeting an incredible clinical team and spending it out from there. Okay, there are several questions that I have. So take them in whichever order you want. But one having to do with health education, I feel like we definitely have a lot of work to do in educating people about their health. And so do you take a particular tactic on that? And what does that look like as far as education? It's very broad, but what is it that you're educating on? Great question. So education is a portion of our platform now, but it's not really where we start. We usually start with screening kids. You have this foundation layer of data And then you can build on that to understand what your school needs, what a family needs, which I can go into a little bit more later. But my stance on, you know, education and our approach to education is one that it requires multiple parties to be involved for consistent educational experience for a child. And what I mean by that is a teacher needs to be teaching the same thing in the classroom as what, you know, a family is getting exposed to at home as you know, what the teacher is learning themselves in professional development. Just meaning the facts and the science and the methodology, it helps if that's really consistent. But the other thing that I really learned, you know, growing up in community that wasn't very open to adopting mental health best practices or therapy, and there was a lot of stigma around that, is that it's really important to meet people where they're at with education, which means allowing people to input their own values and just introducing them to the facts in a way that is very, very understandable and very leveling in terms of the language. And so that's something that we've been really passionate about and really trying to implement in our, you know, education is can we go implement in, you know, New York City as effectively as we can in my hometown in Tennessee? I think we've done a very good job of that. Okay, so you are sharing that you live in Tennessee, yeah? I live in Montana now, but I'm from Tennessee. All right, but so Tennessee is pretty politically charged right now, specifically around education and a lot of these other like ideas where you're talking about having some cohesion among all of these different stakeholders, which they don't seem to have. How do you address that? It's a bigger question than I would say I can directly answer, but what we have done is... We've tried to remove politically charged language. So what we've learned is that, you know, in some states, social emotional learning is a bad word. Really? Social and emotional learning in and of itself, bad word. In some states, yes. So they actually prefer mental health education, that term. Okay. You're referring to, you know, very similar, largely the same thing. I mean, when we're referring to our program, we we actually are referring to the same thing. But when you level with that, language, you get a lot further and then you're able to establish a common ground and say, okay, so we actually both just care about making sure that this child is safe 
our kids are educated, our kids know where to find resources if they're struggling. And once you can get to that point of the conversation, it's no longer a politically charged environment. I think you just have to remember that humans have good intentions and they care a lot about kids. And I think we get wrapped up in some of these the political nature of the things that we're dealing with today, and they're very sensitive. But if you're willing to just adjust your language and level with people, they'll usually, you know, find a way that there's some common ground and you can relate. And so in other states, mental health is the bad word. And so we talk about social emotional learning and kind of reframing it in that light. And so none of that is intended to be deceiving. It's really just meant to figure out what the common language is and then speak to each other in that common language. And can we talk about some of the stats? I'm sure you have some just sitting at the front of your mind as far as like, okay, what is it that we're actually concerned with? What what difference are we trying to make? Because I'm sure that there are many. Yes. So... The stat that I cite all the time that I think is one of the most powerful is that over half of mental illness actually begins before a child is 14 years old. However, there is an average 11-year gap between the first time a child shows a symptom that they're struggling with their mental health until that child receives treatment. And that's from the Children's Hospital Association, both of those stats last year. So really recent data and really scary to understand that there is this 11-year opportunity where we are just not catching kids before they get to the point of care. And at that point, if they don't have the skills, they haven't been equipped with coping mechanisms, that's where we start to see this crisis and this really scary overburdening of our system. So what are some of the questions that are used in the screening process? We use clinically validated screening tools. Our innovation is not in the screenings themselves. It's very much in the technology that's, it's almost, we call it TurboTax for mental screaming, screening. It's the, uh, the technology that we've built around the screeners. We're using, you know, the GAD7 for anxiety, the PHQ-9 for depression. And we are starting to add some other clinically validated screeners for things like ADHD, for suicidality, eating disorders, some other areas that we really feel we can have high impact in. And then as far as the resources that you provide once somebody has been screened positively, where do they go from there? Great question. So... There are so many incredible emerging teletherapy and telepsychiatry companies that are centered around families. And the challenge for them is they're new. So a lot of families are still learning about them and figuring them out. So we actually partner with them and we direct families to those virtual care solutions that can see them within, you know, 72 hours to a week, a much faster time than a lot of our local resources with you know, we're hearing up to six month wait list in a lot of areas. And we will still ask counselors, you know, are there local support that are available to take kids that you want to refer to with our system? And sometimes there are, but we want to make sure that we're always able to handle the volume and make sure the kids are have options, including hybrid and virtual solutions. And then, so are you engaging mostly with the K through 12 schools, but also with health plans and how does that work? Health plans are on the horizon for us. We are engaging with health systems. We just graduated from an incredible accelerator program called KidsX, which accelerates pediatric health innovations with their member health systems. And our demo day is actually at the health conference this year. And 
they introduced us to health systems that are so invested in their community that they actually want to cover the cost of Morrow for the school districts and for the families in those school districts that all feed into their health system. So whether they're using their ER or their ambulatory practices, they really want to get proactive with their community-based health approach. And they see Morrow as a unified solution to do that. That's incredible. Thank you. How far have you guys gotten as far as how many schools you have already contracted? with or counties? Yeah, it's a great question. So we are in five schools and districts. We estimate that we'll be screening about 13,000 kids here in the next four to five months. Wow. We have a couple of contracts that are bigger that would get us into a much bigger bracket. But, you know, we very much believe in doing things right and doing them quality. And so regardless of the number, we just want to make sure that we're getting to the right kids and we're treating them well. Can you share any of the lessons or challenges that you have faced already? Because I'm sure that this isn't easy. You guys are doing something that hasn't really been done in this way before. So I imagine that you've come up against some kind of hurdles. What have they been and what have you learned from that? I think one of the hardest things about what we're building is we're building across a lot of different stakeholders. And I think that's important. I mean, our our pediatricians that we talk to at these health systems who are now sponsoring Maro are saying the way that they define our solution is that we're solving a black hole in pediatrics, which is there is a lack of early data collection. There's a lack of transparency between school, health system, and family. And there's also a lack of just general communication between those groups. And it's really challenging to solve for that. And there's a lot of point solutions that are solving maybe certain aspects of that, but no one that's doing it under one umbrella, one roof, one unified system. And so that's what we are trying to do. And it requires a lot of upfront product build and a lot of buy-in from from many stakeholders and communities. And so I would say it's definitely been challenging to navigate that. But the beautiful thing about it is once you figure it out, you build an incredible moat for your company. And that's what we've been working on. That's incredible. So if you can fast forward, I mean, where would you like to be one and three and five years from now? Our goal, because we are collecting such a a vast amount of data across homeschool and clinic that includes clinical data, also social determinants of health information, we believe that that can be used in a really powerful child and patient-centric way to build machine learning models that can predict mental illness as close to onset as possible. Meaning that child who's been waiting 11 years for someone to realize they're struggling and flying under the radar, we can get to them ideally so much faster. And that really is the goal is, is to be positioned sort of as this data company, but it's very, very centered around the child and just getting them to care. Can I ask a practical question? Sure. Just around like how a child gets screened. Are they getting taken out of class one at a time to go talk to the school nurse? Does it happen like, hey, today's screening day and everybody goes through the same screening? What does that look like? So it's more like the latter. It's a lot like standardized testing, which I hate to use as the analogy because no one likes standardized testing. But In the sense that you're in your classroom setting, it's meant to be, you have to have a school nurse or some sort of licensed or credentialed health professional that's on the screening team, but they don't have to be the one proctoring it. So you could have a teacher write the instructions on the board. All the students log in tomorrow. Our screeners take an average of eight to 10 minutes. So it's not 
like you're being pulled out of class for a very long time. We can assess all of your students or portions of your students at once. So that's another big, a big fear that our schools have is, well, it's amazing that you can do this in this classroom-wide setting and all my students can log in, take it, and they're done. But if I screen 3,000 kids, am I then going to be referring 400 kids at once? How will I handle that? And that is actually not the case we found. So we encourage schools when they're building their screening plan, maybe start with a smaller number and see how it goes. And then you can build up from there. But also, I mean, in our case study most recently, we only saw 2% of kids that needed to be referred to outside clinical support. A lot of kids already had clinical support. A lot of kids actually just needed more one-on-one time with the counselor at school. So there are ways to make it very, very manageable. But to answer your question, it's it's classroom-based. They all have a tablet or something that they're working on and they're logging in. And then that gives you the analytics. I'm assuming it's also HIPAA compliant. Yes. Yeah. And they can go from there. That's kind of incredible. Kenzie. And we're collecting digital consents too. So, you know, parents and students have rights. If the student wants to opt themselves out, they don't have to take it. And if the parent wants to opt their child out, we digitally track that. So when a student logs in to take their screener, if their parents opted them out, they don't have the survey there for them to take. And is it a one-time only type of screening or is it something that would happen on an annual basis or even more often than that? And also... What about in places where something significantly terrible has happened, right? Like there's been so many tragedies at schools. Like, can you, do you come in after that to kind of support as well? The crisis support piece is something that we're trying to understand our role as an organization. Because sometimes when you have, when you have a real tragedy, a student has committed suicide or there's been violence at school, I think that frankly, you do need that more immediate provider support. And we're not a staffing company. Right. For us, what we are trying to do is shift the paradigm from reactive to proactive so that eventually, once we have wide adoption, and we've been doing this for years and years and years, hopefully you see a lot less of that sort of activity. But I don't want to be deceiving about where we are and, and where we're not. So we're really trying to position ourselves at the proactive end of that spectrum. How often would you be screening? It's up to the school. We try to get schools to screen at least two times per year, once per semester, so you can get a more consistent baseline. Some schools want to screen more than that. Some schools want to screen less. You know, we try to make it practical because we understand, you know, schools are really busy and you have a lot going on. But we do find that it can save counselors a lot of time, actually, because then they have a very clear understanding of what kids are externalizing symptoms, internalizing, where their kids are going for intervention. It's just a really efficient workflow, which is what we're trying to create for a staff that they're almost never thought about when it comes to productivity solutions and ways to make their lives and their jobs easier because they are doing a lot of administrative work that ultimately we're handling. I mean, the other part I like, do support with helping them with the coping mechanisms of all the craziness of life, like, is that part of the solution too? So yes, for the the counselors in terms of education for the kids, we give them curriculum. A lot of counselors right now are creating their own curriculum. So they're creating it for teachers in terms of professional development and for the kids. And it's a lot of work. So we give them this whole mental health foundations curriculum that is really a step beyond social emotional learning you know, rather than teaching character traits, which are really important. But for us, we feel like 
you know, kids are dealing with really dire stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really have to be real with them and they're dealing with substance use and abuse and they're dealing with home settings that are really hard and they're hurting themselves and they need people to talk to them like adults and give them information that they can actually use. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give them really practical coping skills and kind of take away some of the the headiness around mindfulness. And I think these things are really good, really helpful, but kids need a one step further. Gotcha. Well, I'm so excited for you and I am so like excited for your future and everything that you're working on. I guess before I close out, you seem quite young, right? So how has it been starting this company as a female founder? And do you have any advice for anybody who else might, who might be considering, you know, taking a leap that it sounds like you have done. There's one founder, and I talk about her all the time, who just made the biggest difference in my world. Her name is Rachel McCrickard, and she founded a mental health company called Motivo. And she was the first female founder I ever saw pitch in a cohort of all male founders. And I thought that was so cool. You know, she's the boundaries that she was pushing forward with her company were there were policies that were actually restricting her company from growing. This was pre-COVID before virtual care solutions were able to be adopted in all 50 states. And she was at the forefront of fighting that legislative battle to make those things happen. And I thought, wow, what just a commendable social impact, you know, effort she's leading. And I felt really blessed to have that sort of, you know, figure to look up to. And so I think there's always someone you can find that you really look up to and you can sort of emulate. And if you spend enough time with them, you can really learn from them. And so that's always my advice. I don't think it's about age or, you know, certainly your gender never stops you from doing anything. If you can find that person that has already charted the path forward in the area that you want to go after, I think that's the best thing that you can do. Again, I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Yeah. Kenzie, if people want to follow your journey or connect with you or Maro, where would you direct them? Awesome. So we have a website which is www.meetmaro.com, M-E-E-T-M-A-R-O. You can also just reach out directly to me at Kenzie at meetmaro.com. I am pretty responsive via email and love to be in touch with anyone who's a fan or has questions or wants to challenge the work that we're doing. We love engaging in those conversations. So please reach out. I love that. Wait, can we stop and talk about you love challenging, when people challenge you? What do you love about that? And- Why? Well, I think it's important. I think a lot of early innovation, particularly in healthcare, needs to be challenged because there are unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. There are things that it's impossible because we're humans to think through every single thing that could possibly happen because of the world we're innovating in. And, you know, we're innovating in a particularly sensitive space where kids' lives are at stake. And and we want to do everything we can to keep them safe. And so I love being challenged because I think that's the only way to build the best product that we could possibly build. And I think that's really, really important, no matter what stage you are, but especially when you're as young of a company as we are. I think that's a really great piece of advice as well, just as far as when people give you feedback that just say thank you, even if it's not what you want to hear, maybe especially if it's not what you want to hear. Wonderful. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.